Hi, welcome back to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. Francine Belay, your host, and I'm super thrilled to bring you inspirational stories, strategies, and practical tips to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money, and lead a movement to change the world. I am on a mission to help entrepreneurs and leaders to become leading voices in their field by leveraging what makes them unique and attract their ideal client and make a bigger impact in the world. So my goal for you is both to experience success in your business and also live your best life now. Today we have Dr. Michael Stiger, who is a psychology professor, author, speaker, director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose on the show. He is a recognized authority on meaningful life, purpose, happiness, psychological strength, and positive psychology. His research on this topic has been published in more than 100 scientific peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapter. Hi, Michael. Great to Hi. see you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Francine. I appreciate it. Oh, that's so fantastic that you are able to join me today. So tell me in your own words, what you currently do and what your job entails. Uh, so my job is a professor of psychology and the director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose. And as you might imagine, teaching is a big part of that. So I, I'm happy that I, I have the opportunity to teach a positive psychology course that I created. And um, the main emphasis there is is. Uh, well, a lot of things I shaped so that they fit with my own personal purpose in, in life, at least as it comes to work. And so that the aim of that course is to convey the science of well-being and having a good life, but also to um, engage undergraduate students in a semester-long project where they choose some domain of their life they'd like to see an improvement in. And then we bring positive psychology and the science of behavior change to them. So that part is really fun. Mm -hmm. um, I also am in, I'm in a counseling psychology program. So I teach uh, psychopathology. So I teach positive psychology on the one hand, and I teach uh, psychological disorders on the other hand in our PhD program. So I mm -hmm. get to look at the full range of, of human behavior. And, you know, even the overlap of things that we sometimes think of as being positive can sometimes end up hurting us and things that we think of as being negative can be our strength. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Do some research, mentor some grad students, mentor some undergraduate students, and then stuff uh, I really like to do, which is get out and give talks and workshops and try to put together retreats and occasionally consult with businesses on making a difference in, in the real, real world. Not to say that, you know, <laughs> academia isn't part of the real world, but you know, there's a big world out there and, uh, you know, I'm excited when I get a chance to try to make a difference. Yeah, so that is fantastic. That's quite a lot that you do. And I'm always fascinated to figure out how people end up doing the job that they are currently doing. How did you end up doing this psychology work, both uh, on the positive and on the pathological side? Yeah, well, you know, I've never had a, 
it's, it's kind of funny. I've never had a, a, a career plan. I've only kind of had a, a, a set of life goals and, and principles. So I never set out to be a professor. I never set out to teach a particular discipline. Um, mostly I just wanted to be kind of figure out my way of, of being helpful in the world and trying to make it a better place. So, um, you know, when I, I wandered through a bunch of different jobs, I, you know, I thought I would, at one point in my life, I, I thought I would be a therapist, and so I trained to do that. I, was, um, I enjoyed that for a little while, but it, it wasn't really using the parts of me that I enjoy using the most, which is a lot of the conceptual stuff. I really like thinking and trying to find patterns, and, and some of that was really good in therapy, but other parts, it was just, um, you know, stuff I could do. I could be very emotionally available and empathic for eight hours a day, but it, it took a it was tiring for me and, and I don't get the same degree of being tired when I get to think a lot. So, uh, yeah, so that kind of led to, um, realization that I could, I could learn how to do research. My interest has always been in why are we here? You know, that's oh. my, my main research. <laughs> have question. you figured out, have you found some answer yet? <laughs> uh, no, I think that that's not a question that we can answer, but you know, I think the question that, I'm, I've found my way too is, is how are we going to be here? You know, and how do we think about why are we here? And those two questions end up being really powerful, I think, in people's lives. So I don't know, there's no data. You know, I, I tend to go back to the data a lot of times. There's no data on um, the existence of God. There's no data on what happens after we die. There's no existence on, there's no hard data that I can understand on whether there's been one big bang or many or parallel universes and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and even if, like, I like to tell people, it, it dawned on me one day, I, I was um, just looking at the number of religions in the world. And I found this amazing graphic online of a family tree of world religions going back to, you know, 6,000 BC. So 8,000 years of religion. And it, it occurred to me if, if we're going to figure out what the truth about the meaning of life is, then we've already done it. And it's one of those answers. And we've probably even heard the right answer, but we don't know, we've also heard a million other answers. So ultimately it comes down to what we're going to do with our lives. Um, you know, and I found, my, I found that I needed my work to be a part of what I think is important in life and mm -hmm. being a professor and being able to just find my way into lots of different opportunities to learn more and interact more with people and try to make a difference. That's, yeah. I guess that's how I found out, found my way to what I do now. <laughs> yes. By exploring. And uh, I think that is fascinating, really trying. And also finally, how you made your own exploration and your own search for understanding uh, why we are here and things like that to make sure that it also become part of your job. Sometimes people separate what their purpose is and what their job is, and then they do the jobs nine to five, and then they put uh, they close the door, and then they just do some other stuff. So I find also myself very difficult to kind of put like separation between my work and my purpose. Um, so, you know, and trying to find a way of integrating the whole thing. Why should I be doing work from nine to five and finishing and then doing some other real stuff after? So why don't I find a way 
to integrate all of those things uh, and, you know, have one life. <laughs> but yeah. it, I, I'm fascinated by what, you know, you, you were t- saying earlier on all those religion and things like that. Finally, are we better off to think that there is some higher purpose or not? Uh, are, we, are we better off to really think that, there is something out there or not? Yeah, well, if we go to your question um, of are we better off feeling or believing that there's a, there's a higher purpose out there or even a higher power, if we look at the data, and that's how I'll an- answer a lot of these questions, if we look at the <laughs> data, um, people who are religiously committed generally tend to feel like life is more meaningful than people who are not. That doesn't mean that folks who are... With, Never, never had a faith tradition or left a faith tradition or are you know, questioning still or atheistic. It doesn't mean that, that there's also a distribution where there's, there's folks that have very little meaning and they feel that way and there's folks that have quite a lot of meaning. So the distributions are, are broad, whether you're religious or where you're not. And there's certainly stories and you may even know people who are quite religious and yet still struggle with that question of whether life is meaningful. Mm. Um, but yeah, if you're just going to, go based on, you know, if you're going to be like a, an insurance adjuster and say, what's the safest path, you'd probably want to pick a religion. <laughs> uh, but for some people, that's not going to, that's not going to be it. And, you know, and even if they are within a religion, they're going to approach religion in a couple different ways. Yeah. So for example, I tend to be a questioner. I tend to feel like meaning is, finding my path to meaning is always happening. And, and any new event that happens, any new, um, insight that I have about my own life. I want to process that. I want to reflect on the larger whole of what, I, of what life is all about. So it's, I'm always questioning and I'm always searching. And for some people, that's a really uncomfortable spot to be in. Mm-hmm. And they're much more comfortable with certainty. And, and I get suspicious when I feel certain about things because I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I know how faulty I am. And I know that I've been wrong in the past. And I just think, well, you know, this is a big, long, confusing journey. I should just have my eyes open and see what's going on. So people are very different. And, and we've seen that. I've seen that in the data I've collected, um, both within a religious context and outside of religious context. Some people want the mystery. And some people will, you know, imagine life is like a detective novel. Some people want to just go really slow and try to put the pieces together as they read it. And some people flip to the end, find out who the killer is, and then they can enjoy the rest <laughs> of the book. So... Yeah, so that's super. So yeah, so actually, uh, I think that yes, so that's fascinating. But you said that you never, you never rely on, um, you know, you, your own certainty. Is there anything that you think that you are certain of in your own life? Any certainty? Anything? Uh, you know, I don't. I'm not the. I'm not a intellectual powerhouse like uh, you know, some of these super smart people in our past. But I was really struck with. The, the sort of Socratic ideal, you know, when Socrates said that true wisdom is acknowledging you know nothing, right? And that just feels right to me. I, I think, you know, I'm certain about the overall direction I want my life to go. I, I'm, I, I have no uh, real questions about whether I should be selfish or giving. I have no questions about whether I should try to be a good person or a greedy person, you know, things like that. Um, and, and a lot of it after that is, is I don't feel like I have to be certain because I'm, I can always adjust on the fly 
you know, if you look at my life, that there have been some things that have changed quite a lot, but most things haven't, you know, so I keep revisiting and I keep thinking, oh, yeah, I, I actually do like that stuff. And I actually am committed to this path, but it's, it's not, um, it's not that I have to feel like there's no questioning in it. I, mm-hmm. I love questions more than answers most of the time. Actually, for you, the worst thing that can happen is to have definite answers to what you are searching. So your life is best le- lived when you are still searching for something, right? <laughs> I think so. And also, I, but I think there's also something there. Like some people want to, um, some people just want to know. Whatever it is, they just want to know. They want yeah. the right answer. And, and I, like the, I like the process of exploring quite a lot. And I think if I had, like, the answer to something, I would probably find some other questions to start asking. <laughs> just as life is more interesting to me that way. <laughs> so tell me, um, were you always like that since you were a kid or something just happened to you uh, at some certain time to kind of get into this path of exploration and asking questions and things to like that? I think I was always like that. You know, one of the, some of my earliest memories are of trying to, um, you know, I was raised in the, in the Catholic Christian tradition and, you know, in a lot of these, in a lot of Christian traditions, there's the statement, you, you can only go to heaven if, if you accept Jesus as your savior. And I just, I think in third grade, we were learning about some of the indigenous people in, in the Amazon rainforest. And it was the Yanomamo people, for whatever reason, was the, was the nation that I remember hearing about. And I thought, well, these are uncontacted people. So we're, you know, here in the 1970s or 80s, maybe 70s, you know, we're talking about the first anthropologists who are from the West and presumably from a Christian culture are going and interacting with people who've been existing for 15,000 years in their own spiritual tradition. And yet every single one of those people who ever lived is going to hell just because, (laughs) you know, it's like, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. So how uh, were you? How were you when you were thinking that way? uh, Seven or eight, I think, you know, so just, I think it's a natural time when people start to wonder what's, what's really going on. And, you know, I think I always question politics and I just, I just feel like if everyone's saying one thing, I wonder, like, what is the other thing that, that no one is saying? And, and do I agree with that or not? I don't, I just have never been comfortable just accepting things unless I can figure it out. There are certain, like, chemistry, I just accept what they say because I can't wrap my head around it. So I just accept what they say. But in, when it comes to philosophy, how we're supposed to live life, political beliefs, all that sort of stuff, I really want to weigh all that stuff on my own. And I, I value what people have to say, but it, eventually I'm going to have to own it myself. And I, I, I do think that that um, is a part of a typical journey that someone go through in their life is at a certain point, whatever you grew up believing, whatever you've accepted as your, your North Star or your Southern Cross, you have to decide and, and own that path. Like mm. You're going there for reasons you can understand and you embrace that path or you choose a different one. Yeah. How did you manage to get out of the Catholic uh, world? Um, you know, because you've been raised as a Catholic. So how did you manage to get out of it? Or have you always, even when you were raised within that, um, um, you know, faith, you were not kind of convinced uh, of anything. You just questioned at all the time. Or did you make the shift at some time, at some point? 
I don't think I've ever really made a, a big shift. I mean, every I think I think everything is is still important to me and still part of me, and informs informs who I am and informs the way I view the the universe and our job here. I don't think that um, I don't think that the the spiritual heart of of how I was raised and my and my spiritual and religious life has really changed that much. Um, I think I would think more that I've just added other pieces to it and, and more like, you know, it's, it's like an, it feels like an orchestra after a while, you know, that, that you can keep adding more voices. You can keep adding more richness and complexity and it can, it can actually sound better when you add more, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But I, yeah. I wouldn't say that, yeah. um, you know, I, I've been, you know, rejected anything yeah. in in that sense and it. it's it's all part of my journey yeah yeah totally I valuable guess. in that way yeah <laughs> that's awesome so now actually uh one of the article that uh actually brought me to you very insightful article that uh you wrote in uh berkeley university uh, papers um uh, you know called does a meaningful job need to burn you out <laughs> i read that actually is a uh, a past um, you know interviewer or guest of mine dr bruce lloyd actually that sent me that article and uh, i found it so insightful and then you say somewhere it's a gift when work is so meaningful that you'll do it for free and that is also a problem so Meaningful work, in a sense, you know, is, you know, where the work, you know, itself is rewarding and worth doing regardless of pain. And that is the downside. Can you tell us more about this realization? I think yeah, that's, well, that will interest more than one person. <laughs> well, I, I think that it's important to know how I come at work. And work is, to me, if, if, if you have the the liberty and freedom to make this happen an opportunity then i think work is supposed to be a seamless part of your life you know, I, I don't i re, you know, we hear a lot of times i would well people do terrible things and they just say well i was just doing my job and i was just following orders you know i completely reject that if people have any kind of choice about that at all and i think if you're doing a job or your job has a negative impact um, on the world and the people around you, then you're not being a good person. I mean, they're, they're, you can't just say, well, it's not my fault because that's my job. Well, you're in, you're, you have choices. And so um, if people don't have choices, of course, that, that's not their responsibility. But I, I've been fortunate to have, have choices in my life. I was, I was uh, raised with the expectation that I could um, find my own path and, you know, it was born luckily into a country where that was pretty possible in the, in the U S. So the choice of a career was, was a, was a practical extension of what I was really supposed to be doing in my life. And um, as a sort of not very practical person, my first thought was, well, let's start with the theme of my life and let's start with the purpose of my life and then find things that seem to support that. And as, my life becomes more complicated and I've got a, you know, I get married and I've got children and I've got a mortgage, then the, the practical necessities come in, but there would never be a case for me personally, because I focus on life first and then work later. Not everyone does, but there'd never be a case where I would do something unethical or something I, 
I felt wasn't me being a good person in the name of work. So that's, that's really how I approach it. And, and that's, so I, I don't come for, to meaningful work as, with a management background. I'm not an HR person. I'm a, I'm a psychologist, but, but mainly I'm also, um, I just really think it's, in, I think it's important that people figure out how to have good lives. Mm-hmm. What is the point otherwise? You know, you just buy stuff till you're dead. I mean, who cares about that? So, so that is the approach. So yeah. then um, work from that perspective can be an extension of life. And, and work is the way in which you impact the world around you. A lot of times it's, it's, at least in my culture in the U.S., it's the way that you become known to people first, right? The first thing you say is, well, what do you do? At a, you meet someone at a party, what do you do? And like, you know, or tell me about yourself. They want to know what your job is and then family and stuff like that. So, um, well, what I've seen in, in, the, in the clinical world, and, and once you start going out and you say, like, I'm interested in meaning and purpose, then people will tell you their story. They, they tell you, it's, usually they ask a question, you know, so what is the meaning of life? And they're only kind of joking about it, you know, or they'll, they'll talk about Money Python, or they'll talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but it's, it's an invitation to open the box and to, um, I find it really hard sometimes to do things that are meaningful in my life because I have other demands. So we'll talk about work. And when people find that thing that they can do and they can participate in society, they can participate in, in culture, they can participate in the economy and they can receive the material support that they need to, to live secure lives, all that starts to come together in something that, that's just powerful for them. And when we find something that is meaningful to us, a lot of the reward and a lot of the motivation is, is coming from within us. And the external stuff is, is a huge hassle, right? <laughs> and sometimes the poorly managing things like salary and benefits and all that sort of stuff can actually detract from, from the meaning of the work in and of itself. So the problem is that we would love it if all of our economies were oriented around people doing something that they truly loved because they thought it, it made the world a better place. Like, that'd be fantastic. We wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have right now. Mm. But what we see is that in modern economies, um, the incentive system is a supply and demand, you know, calculation. How much supply of workers is there for a, a set of tasks that need to be done? And if those tasks have high barriers or we tend to incentivize them in certain ways, then we don't need them to be meaningful. You look at financial management, you look at the extraction industries and all these sorts of things, they're well or even celebrity, right? They're, people are paid really well for things that are not that are very difficult to do, but not particularly important to like human flourishing in a sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people who are doing things that are important to human flourishing, oftentimes are doing it because that's their passion. And so built into our system is the sense that people will do this because they love it and they're called to it. So we don't have to incentivize them as much as much to do it. So we've kind of built into our, our modern economies unintentionally, I, I think. I don't even know how you do it on purpose, but you know, unintentionally built in a burnout engine. We take people who are really passionate, we put them in difficult jobs that are critical to the flourishing of society, and then we heap tons and tons of financial pressures on them. Mm-hmm. We under-resource them, we underpay them, we overflood them with demands, and they want to keep doing it because it's important to them. So that's the central dynamic. Their life is meaningful 
when they get to keep doing that type of work. And so they won't. Yeah. This is the question that I'm trying to solve, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm going to find any answer anytime soon, but that's the point. The whole point, this is why I call this meaningful work, meaningful life is also, and then uh, I have also those three topics, meaning, money, and movement, is that this is the reality. The incentive of the society at the moment is that, yeah, people are banking on people doing something they are passionate. You see all the social entrepreneur movement, all the volunteering thing, all, all those non-NGO type of thing where people go because really, really they want to help. But, you know, some people are trying to do that as a business, but you know, but there's no money in there. And then they will burn themselves out so much that they will finally turn and say, I have my mortgage to pay. I have this bill to pay. So therefore, how do you do both what is meaningful and can give you more money to live on? That's the question I'm trying to solve. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Part of it is that that is the reality and we're, we're participants in that reality. We can, we're, we would be fighting uphill if we said what we want to do is replace the, we want to flip the incentives around. Right? I remember a bumper sticker in the seventies or eighties, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if the, if education had a trillion dollar budget and the military had to hold a bake sale, right? You know, just, you know, it's a pie in the, it's pie in the sky thinking in, in a world that it, as it exists right now. But that is the system that we all, in, in at least in democratic societies, that we all really vote to sustain. And if that system doesn't work for the things that we think are important, then it is in some sense a, a collective responsibility. Given that it seems unlikely, and maybe that we're going moving quickly and that we're ever going to move quickly in the direction of, you know, where the military has to ask for fundraisers and the educational system is flush with cash or whatever system that you think is, is critical to supporting society, then, then it becomes individual choices. And I would say that there's two pieces to that. The first is having your eye on the long game. You know, that you think about, um, I mean, it's like any other kind of work, you know, let's say that I've got a bit, I'm, I've got to dig a, a trench in the backyard and I could go all out in the first 30 minutes and just dig as fast as I can. And, you know, I'll probably hurt myself. I'll probably get tired. I won't be able to work the next day or I can do, do a little bit at a time. And so I do try to encourage people to think about the idea that our lives are going to be built up with impact over the whole course of our life. And if we throw everything we have at the first challenge that we see, we might, we might spend all of our resources quicker than they can be replenished. I think in that same article, I used the, um, the metaphor of an aquifer, you know, like these underground collections of fresh water where, you know, rain and other surface water slowly, slowly filters through rock and soil and to, to collect in these caverns. And then we pump that out and we drink it or we spread it on fields or we water golf courses, whatever we want to do with it. If we pull that out faster, then it can slowly replenish eventually we lose that resource altogether. So that's, I think in some ways very similar because if you're, if you're pulling out at, at the same level that you're replenishing, that is to say, you're giving from the heart, you're giving from your sense of passion, you're giving because it's a purposeful activity for you, makes your life meaningful, you'll get psychological benefits. 
you'll feel good. You'll feel like this is an important thing to do. You'll have a strong sense of worth as an individual and you'll be able to feel like life is worth living, which is a huge gift. And a lot of people don't always feel that way. If you at the same time are overwhelmed with bills and overwhelmed with the fear that you won't be able to get an education for your children if you have children or that you won't be able to retire or you can't go out and uh, have fun with your friends anymore because they're earning five times what you earn. And they appreciate that you're doing it, but they, you can tell that you're a drag on them now because they, they want to go to the new restaurant that got a Michelin star. And you're like, oh, I have to make lentils tonight at home. You know, so it's, it's, that, will, that will mean that you don't get to participate for very long in this thing that's, that's meaningful to you because it's just wearing you down faster than you can be built out. I try to help people understand those two pieces that over the course of your lifetime, you know, I, in a typical week, I don't make the impact that I used to make in one hour of being a therapist, but I couldn't be a therapist my whole life. It was just something I felt was important. I always knew I was doing meaningful work. I always uh, knew I was competent at the job. Um, I always valued the impact I could make. And I even felt really good about myself when I was doing it, but I was, I could just sense I was drawing down something that would never come back if I depleted it all the way. And even in my present job, I feel like that's that's the case. I mean, um, you know, I think the purpose, one purpose in my life is to try to do what I can to make the world a better place and inspire people who want to do the same. And so when someone asks me to do uh, do something for them or, you know, go travel to talk to a group, it, I, I tend to say yes, even if it if probably what I should be doing is just, you know, working on a sustained project or something else. So I have to be, we have to be smart about it because I don't want to be burned out in five years. Yeah. And I don't want to also lose my health. And I, you know, you know? Yeah. so it's, it's a give and take within the things that we have to do and the things that, that we feel called and that we love to do. Yeah. It's a balance, right? We have to find <laughs> the way, yes, of, paying the bills while doing something meaningful. <laughs> yeah. And I think for a lot of people, honestly, um, a lot of people don't feel like they deserve to be able to put the brakes on. You know, I think some people who are, are, are called to these lines of work, you know, being in the police, being in the emergency services, being in social work, being a teacher, being a nurse, uh, people who are called to that, I think sometimes have long put other people's needs before their own mm -hmm. and, and would struggle with the idea that I get to, I get to also think about what's good for me. So um, helping folks realize that it, it, it works when both, when you're both helping other people and you're also helping yourself. And that's the balance. I think people, some people swing, of course, way too far and they couldn't, they don't give a shit about anyone else and all they care about is themselves and, you know, the, the little toys that they get to get, you know, when they walk through the airport and see the Prada store, whatever it is. I mean, all that ridiculousness is, is not good either. So balance in all things. I mean, this is a very old idea from many, many different cultures that we want to be able to balance things out mm. and going too far in the selfish direction obviously is toxic, mm. but yeah. you know, yeah. going too far in the giving everything, of yourself up for other people 
isn't sustainable. Yeah. It's just sustainable. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. So, you know, if somebody is, is stuck in this paradigm today, how can they get out? <laughs> how can they, somebody really who is giving, 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 giving to everybody else and not taking care of themselves, how do you make them, you know, to at least shift to also take care of themselves before it's too late? Well, I mean, it's going to be very different for every every individual person. I mm. think the most, among the most important things are being really honest with yourself. Mm. Um, a lot of, I found a lot of people don't, it's almost like you have a box of, you have a box of secrets inside your head somewhere. And, and for some people, it's, uh, the universe has no meaning. Or for some people, it's, am I living my life in the right way? For some people, it's, Am I getting what I need? You know, and I think that we have to always be able to open that that scary box that we just hope is going to be fine. We don't want to think about, am I a good person? Um, am I taking care of myself? Do I deserve to have a good life or should I just sacrifice everything for other people? Am I hurting the world around me? Is there anything to this life after all? You know, all these sorts of questions I think are best when people feel like at least they can sit with the questions, even if they don't have an answer. So being able to, to come into that space where you're really honest with yourself, I am, I'm being worn out. I feel terrible. I'm worried that I can't do this for very much longer, or I'm at the breaking point already. I don't know what's going to happen to me next. I think recognizing those things, that's, that's critical. And without doing that, I think of the, the other metaphor in a sense is comes from old cartoons with Wile E. Coyote. This seemed to always happen. These cartoons, Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, these are they're old, old cartoons. But, you know, the Roadrunner would go running and, and Wile E. Coyote would try to chase the Roadrunner and he'd run off a cliff mm-hmm. and he'd just be running, running, running in, in thin air. And then suddenly he'd realize that He's run off the cliff and there's nothing behind him. And that's when he falls. <laughs> yeah, so. it's just because it's tough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to I'm look sorry. around. It's, it's much better to realize you're getting close to the edge of a cliff than to just keep running no matter what. Because you can <laughs> always go back if you're close to the edge of the cliff. But once you've gone too far, you've got nowhere to go but a, a fall and to heal at that point. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So people have to know, people have to be able to ask for help. And sometimes what I say to, to people who are in the helping professions or who are just being pulled thin because of their, um, because of their passions and they're neglecting other parts of their lives that are also necessary for survival. Um, one of the interesting pieces of the research, uh, and actually this goes back to a lot of spiritual traditions as well, it's better to give than to receive. Yeah. And this, this is actually true psychologically, but typically speaking, people who help people get more out of helping someone than being helped. So if I let someone help me, it's critical for me to move forward if I'm starting to burn out, to ask for help, to, to get some support. But the people I'm letting help me are actually getting something quite valuable themselves out of that experience. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's most likely not hurting them at all. If yeah. that is a, if we're being honest, uh, and authentic about our need for help. I mean, there are types of help seeking that are, are toxic, right? It's just all about attention and it's yeah. all about soothing and nothing's ever going to change. <laughs> we all know the person who 
always has a crisis, yeah. always the same kind of crisis, mm-hmm. ever makes any legitimate difference, it changes in their lives. So then it just, I'm not going to help you anymore. Right. Yeah. But like someone who's really authentic about what they need, yeah. you're actually doing that other person a favor. And yeah. sometimes that's the way that, that people have always just given and given and given and given. Yeah. See why it's important also yeah. to, to help back. Mm-hmm. You always uh, in psychology, um, people who actually are in helping professional people have, you know, some kind of pathological way of helping too much. Is there not also some, you know, problem perhaps they are trying to cover or they are trying to, um, I don't know, they are overcome by giving. So therefore, whilst they're doing that, they are not solving the right problem <laughs> themselves. Well, I think I think across the spectrum, it, there's always the possibility that um, we're not addressing the right problems in our lives. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people who are giving and helping are any more prone to that. Than, to that, than the one who don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine you know the people who filled their closets with new yeah. clothes and new shoes, and they've got eight watches and six handbags <laughs> and you know two cars, and they've got a big screen TV or whatever it is. And they've filled their lives with all the stuff that the magazines and Instagram says they're supposed to have. And they've even been to uh, the Maldives and you know, they've got they <laughs> their list and there's just nothing inside. You know what I mean? So they have to keep going to the next thing. So unless we're willing to go inside ourselves and take honest stock of the type of life that we're living, whether that is, um, justifiable in some sense according to the ethics and values that that speak to us and according to the type of impact we make on the world or the people around us that are necessary for our survival unless we really do that there's always a chance whether we're you know giving out of guilt or or consuming out of fear whatever it is we're going to really struggle to have that life that we look back on and think yeah that that was a good use of my time here as opposed to i'd rather not think about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes you uh, also in this article you also say that meaningful work is probably more demanding than meaning meaningless work um so can you explain how yeah i think it's the stakes right so i i think about um if, if something is really, so imagine that you're, you can consider yourself to be a creative person or an artist, right? And you, uh, you know, but you're not sure if you're really good at that art, but you, you really put yourself into it. And people are sitting around one day and they're sharing the things that they drew. And, you know, like someone like me, I know I'm a terrible, I'm terrible at this stuff. So I'll draw something. It'll look terrible. Everyone will have a good laugh and it doesn't bother me at all. Cause I don't have any stakes. I don't yeah. have any stakes. I've got no ties to that. Yeah. And someone who really, cares wants to be an artist someday shows what they have yeah in that moment before people react to it it's a it's a scary moment because this is this is important to me and i'm putting it out there so i'm not protected i don't have barriers of cynicism i don't have barriers of well i'm just doing this to earn a paycheck i don't have barriers of i don't care what people think you know this is this is actually me you know and so when we're vulnerable like that it takes Unless we're really good at being vulnerable and we're really secure in who we are, it takes more to be out and open like that. So if we're doing work that isn't just earning a paycheck, paying the rent, putting food on the table, but it's also 
me trying to be the best version of myself that I can be and trying to do something about why I'm here on the planet, then we're really exposed. And just the psychological work of being tied to the way that we put ourselves into our work, but then think about how the outcomes of that work really make a difference. Right. So, Mm-hmm. You know, if you're rooting for a sports team you've never heard of and they lose, who cares? <laughs> if you're rooting for a dear friend to overcome an illness and they lose, like that's the sort of difference that mm-hmm. meaningful work is. It's from something that you wear a uniform for your job and you don't care what it says. You don't know the company mission. You don't care if the company goes bankrupt versus it's like a dear friend. And you care or a child or a parent and you care about how the outcome goes mm, and yeah. so if you fail i mean you think about people who've been working for uh to protect the environment for the last 45 years and mm. to see what's come of that or people mm. who are uh want to see the spread of liberty and justice around the world and mm. how that looks at times you know and and so when you really care, it's not, just a, it's not just a news headline scrolling across the bottom of the screen. It is like the heart monitor of mm. someone you care about. Yeah. So it, it takes something different out of us mm-hmm. to do meaningful work. The stakes are higher. And at some times in our life, we won't be able to handle that, right? Or, you know, so I think about how often in, I enjoy just doing like one of the things I like to do is I like to, I like to chop wood, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, that's good. good I just activity. get out there with the, yeah, with a, with a mall and split some logs. And I now feel guilty about burning the wood. So I, don't, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't get to that level because of the, the atmosphere, but mm. I still like that very simple stuff where the stakes are very low. Mm-hmm. You can really just be in the, in the flow of, of the activity. Mm-hmm. It's really different than, you know, this like a conversation like this, I care. I care what you think. I care what your listeners think. I hope that some, I don't offend anyone and I don't close any doors. And I hope that people will want to take um, a look at, at whether life is going the way that they want it to. And are there ways that it can be a little bit more like that? Yeah, so yeah. Care, you know, yeah. different than chopping wood. <laughs> That's great, yes. So um, I have this um, actually question I'd like to get your perspective on. Do you have any thoughts on what meaningful life means in a world of AI when artificial intelligence and all those things are kind of threatening or, you know, people see perceive them as threatening human um what what are your thoughts oh i don't know if you have any thought on those <laughs> you know meaningful life in a world of ai who can do anything else that we can do so what that meaningful life will be yeah well i think there's there's a lot there's a lot packed into that question I, and i love thinking about it i did a, a paper uh called the good life in a technological age uh, oh, so I, I, need, I need to uh, find that i will add that in the show notes yeah so that yeah, article so- yeah, we, I, I tried to take a look at some of the big tech trends. So I looked at AI, I looked at um, bio modification and, and some of those sorts of, what does it mean when everything becomes technologically mediated? And I think what we find is there's probably not gonna be, the, the, the main questions are not gonna be any different than what the Buddha was asking, than what Socrates was asking, than what Jesus and Muhammad were asking. and you know, what, uh, you know, Arjun was, was struggling with in, in the, in the 
uh, big betas and all that sort of stuff, right? So it, it's all the same stuff. How do we be good when we, we actually sort of know what is good. And a lot of our lives are spent trying to figure out how we don't have to do that, <laughs> right? And, you know, like how we can, we can, we do, well, that's good, but that's also very hard. So I'll, I'll shift my attention over here. And, and technology just makes it easier to shift your attention. And it makes it easier to imagine that the outcomes of good work are being done for us. Mm -hmm. So, but being a good person isn't just about good outcomes occurring in the world around us. It's about us participating in, in making those good outcomes happen, mm -hmm. us living uh, with good conduct and living towards good intentions and good purpose. So those questions won't change. I think that the, the trickier question and we're already seeing a lot of this come up in a lot of different ways is what does it mean to be human mm -hmm. in some in some cases we're seeing this this question evolve around um old ideas about gender and sex but what does it mean to be human well mm -hmm. in the beginning there was a man and a woman well that's <laughs> not the case in our world anymore that mm -hmm. we just have a man and a woman and mm -hmm. You know, so thinking about what is it, what is humanity, I think, becomes a more challenging question when we're able to modify ourselves. Yeah. Whether it's consciously through AI or whether it's physically through biomodification or um, wearable technology or even implantable cyborg-like technology. The mm. question is going to be there, but it's going to be easier and easier to get distracted from it. Yeah. And harder, harder to agree on the starting principle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. So, um, so now, uh, can you actually tell me when you realize who you are, if you have realized already, uh, who you are and what you're meant to do in life? You seem to have quite at least some great clarity on that, that, you know, on your exploring path anyway. So, you know, even yeah. if you don't have answer, that is some kind of certain kind of uh, way of thinking. Yeah, well, I think I had some benefits in my life. I was raised, um, I was raised to have strong values, and I was raised um, to feel like the material world is not the only thing, right? You know, so it's not just about living; isn't just about whether I have a lot of stuff or even about what I see in front of me mm. necessarily in the world. That there's we're more than just animals, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, like the dual nature of humanity, the, the, the spirit and the beast, right? There's, there's more than about, there's more life than just eating yummy food and having a comfy bed and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think those two benefits were good um, and set the foundation for what could have really been another, a fairly non-productive or maybe even destructive part of myself, which is I, I really, really... Um, want to live my own way. <laughs> I really, really do. Uh, you know, and I, I, I need to, I do best when I'm really doing something I think is interesting and important. And I can do other things, but it's hard and it's not sustainable. So, <laughs> so that's always been the case. I've always just felt like I have to find the thing that is important for me or understand why something someone else says is important is actually important. I'm very poor at accepting people, what people say I should be doing unless I can figure out why they might be right. Yeah. I'll always think about it now. When I was a kid, I didn't. I was like, you're wrong. I don't care. 
everybody, you know. <laughs> so um, that that idea that that ultimately what what it boils down to in in life is that we're about more than than the the world of flesh and food and all these great things that I I really enjoy. Um, we're about more than that. And at least for me, I'm drawn to the individual responsibility we have to answer those questions or at least keep those questions alive for our, for ourselves. Mm. And I don't then like to impose uh, equally. I don't like to impose on anyone what yeah. my view is. And every person I encounter who seems to have a very different view than me, um, I want to understand their view because who knows, they might be right, you know, so, exactly. not like, so again, it's always about trying to pull things in, you know, try to be really, I think, realistically humble. No one knows yeah. for sure. No <laughs> one knows for sure. So, so why would I, you know, so it's always about that sort of, thing. so, you know, the values I had were, um, we're here to do good. You know, we, and everyone can. And I did, I had a life where I was very, very fortunate not to face uh, a lot of obstacles and not to face a lot of hardships. I was um, safe my whole life. I was able to participate in the economy with very few barriers because of my demographics um, and the nation I live in. And I was a recipient of a lot of thumbs on the scale, making life pretty easy for me. That's not the case for everyone in the world. So mm. to me, that feels like I have even more responsibility than not get stuff for granted. Mm. There's mm. no guarantee any of the stuff that made my life, that smoothed my path, mm. should have happened or that I earned it at all, you know? Mm. So, so then I need to help and I need to do things that, um, you know, in, in my Catholic education, there was, there's the idea about you don't want to put your your light under a basket. And mm. we were talked, we were told that we were given talents. And the reason we're given talents is to bring them into the world and make mm. the world a better place. And uh, I think you see a lot of that wisdom in, in a lot of different cultures. That's just the one that I ended up hearing. Yeah. And so that felt to me like that's what I have to do is I have to figure that out. I went through some rough patches. I, I won't lie. I, you know, I was quite, quite selfish and cynical and emotionally <laughs> volatile and I was uh, a little bit too fond of alcohol for a while and all these sorts of things. And I, was, I was a bit of a train wreck, but that overall ethic of trying to help and also trying to be authentic, I, I had to confront what I was doing and, and where I was falling short and where I was hurting people and where I was squandering my, what I'd been given as a possibility to help the world. So that's really all I've ever done is just kind of that process um, of trying to make a positive difference. And if I can't make a positive difference, I at least don't want to hurt anyone. Yeah. So those two things really are, are key. And then being authentic about who I am. I would love it if I was uh, a super inspiring person or if I was a very talented therapist or if I was um, whatever. There's a million different ways. That, you know, my favorite, some of my favorite idols in the world are Nelson Mandela and, you know, Martin Luther King for their ability to impact and be so loving in the face of a thing. I get mad in traffic. I mean, can, can you imagine like, <laughs> 27 years on Robin Island, like Nelson Mandela, right? It would, it would never happen. So I love that. It's mm -hmm. not me. I can't be that. So I just can only be what I am. Mm, of course. And, yeah. But me being frail in some ways, like I can't really be super empathic and emotionally available. I, mm -hmm. I'm also terrible at case notes. So like being a therapist was, 
was not great. <laughs> but that doesn't let me off the hook of trying to help them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, you know your limits. You know where you can help and where you, you know, just have to pull back. Actually, one of my questions you've answered a bit earlier is like, what did you struggle the most in life? If you have to think about, you know, what you have struggled the most in life, what would that be? Yeah, uh, it being selfish. You know, um, you sounds like a giving person. Uh, well, you know, I, think that, I think that the two things I would struggle most with are, are that I, I don't think I'm particularly less selfish than other people. I want mm-hmm. things to go my way. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd make a really fantastic, benevolent dictator of the world. I mean, just put me in charge of everything. I'd be really content with that. Uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, uh, sometimes I feel very lazy, you know, and so you put those things together and there's a temptation not to work in relationships. There's a temptation... Uh, to just read another detective novel or have a, have a beer <laughs> on a sunny day instead of getting work done or calling my mom, which I'm supposed to do more, you know, all these sorts of things. So those are always the, the limitations. And, you know, without a commitment to really trying to put together a life path that, that means something, mm. I think that's where I ended up just sort of angry and spinning my wheels and looking to be offended and, you know, looking at people, looking at, people in the world around me as, as obstacles to what I somehow deserve, even though I never deserve it. You know what I mean? So like that was the trap. Yeah. Like I'll just do what feels good now and people are in my way and they're terrible and that's enough, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So um, now let's, um, you know, if I talk, uh, you talk, uh, we, we talked about that earlier, uh, but again, this is much more like specific about money um, to really figure out, you know, as that earlier, how to, make sure that we get, you know, we both make, you know, do what we love and get paid well for it. Any kind of tip that you can share of how to do that? Um, well, I mean, this is, this is, yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm not a hedge fund manager. So I've definitely, <laughs> uh, you know, chosen a path that isn't primarily oriented around the financial side, but and I think it would be very different if I wasn't a parent. So, so a lot of my financial imperatives come from a sense of, I'd like to have my children have the same opportunities I had. And that's mm-hmm. just way more expensive now, okay. you know, healthcare and education, like those two pieces are crazy expensive compared to when I was, when I was young. So there's a big incentive for that. I don't need a lot of things. I do like, I do really like to travel. Um, and, and because to me, everyone in the world is an example of a way to try to understand what life's all about. So, you know, with, if I was only eating lentils <laughs> and I, I was, you know, living out of my car, I would, I would feel like that's not sufficient for sure. So a, a step to take is, is really to figure out, I think, what is important to you in, in life? You know, what is absolutely necessary? I think people need, need shelter. Um, people need to have a sense that they're valued. And, you know, then after that, I think being able to access opportunities that will let you live the life that is important to you mm. comes next. So for some people that might be, that might require a lot of money for some people that might require less, but for everyone it's going to require something because we don't live in a society where a lot is given to us. So then, um, you know, I think there's, there's probably two common answers. One is to feel, is, is to ask for what 
ask for what you think that you need, right? So if you think that you need a particular level of payment for a service, ask and then see if that works out. If it doesn't, you have a different set of choices, but uh, people have worth. And when you, especially when you're doing something that is of sort of enduring value, you should feel okay asking for something that reflects your worth. The other piece would be um, to be willing to be creative about what it is that you love and where that might find a home. So if I love to help people in a particular way, like meaning, no, very few people are, are, have storefronts that are selling meaning, you know? So it's not a commodity that's likely to, um, no one's gonna come to me and try to buy a bunch of meanings. So I have to find ways of putting what I know into a format that people might find interesting. And to do that over time is gonna, you know, take some creativity to meet people where they're at as opposed to just sticking with my own ideas about what, you know, everyone should read these philosophers and go have fun, you know? So <laughs> we look for opportunities to meet people who, uh, we ask for what we think we're worth. And then we also look for ways to, cr to create, to, to put our message in front of people who would be willing to pay for it in, yeah. in a format that's valuable to them, not just valuable to ourselves. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good distinction. Yeah. It's great. Finally, our last part is building a movement. So which movement are you leading or like to lead or be part of? <laughs> oh, there's so many. I don't, I don't really see myself as a, as a big leader. Uh, so <laughs> I, I much prefer to support people. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, the, the movement that I'm doing, the one piece of leadership I'm engaged in right now is I'm the Congress chair for the 2021 International Positive Psychology Association World Congress. We'll be holding it in Vancouver. So I was in, in British Columbia, Canada. So I've been responsible for finding the site and then working with vendors and things like that. And Part, as part of that, I, uh, I think everyone realizes this by now, but I've substantially changed the mission of what I hope that we can accomplish with these, con with these uh, conferences. So we're going to be acting out our values, but also important to me. So we have you know, almost 3,000 members and we'll have you know, 1,600 or 1,800 people come to our Congress. And these are people who dedicate their lives as coaches, as consultants, as therapists, as teachers, as researchers to exploring and, and fostering the best of what's in humanity. Those are exactly the people that we need at the leadership of our societal and even existential crises that we face all around the world. These are people who know how to get things done towards flourishing aims. So I'm putting in front of them uh, and in front of myself, how do we engage with the big issues and how do we engage in areas where we're needed? And, you know, so in, in that sense, if that works, then, uh, you know, we'll have a, a pretty different looking organization of folks who are looking for opportunities with some part of their practice and some part of their time to pitch in with organizations that are doing things that, that are, are healing. Mm. When is it um, happening, the uh, Congress? It's, or? It's, it'll be in July uh, July 20 something in 2021. Okay. And yeah, so, you know, is, I think is, that. 
Is there any website or something that you can give after? Can <laughs> Not quite yet. One, <laughs> one, yet. One, <laughs> the, the website of our, of our organization is www.ipanetwork.org. So it's I-P-P-A-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.org. And we'll be able to announce that we have the Congress location right now, but we're, we're working on the artwork and some of that sort of stuff that yeah. I never my whole life think about but you know, we really want to be able to engage with um, the local Vancouver community including the First Nations uh, we want to when we're there to be uh, a benefit to the Vancouver community so we're going to try to work really hard to um, you know both have a have a carbon neutral footprint or even be kind of cool if we we're carbon negative we want to be able to have all these people who really care about flourishing engage with uh, local organizations serving on, you know, folks who don't have the resources or the opportunities they need. Um, we want to be able to support indigenous communities, of course, and the first nations of, of Canada. And we want to be able to then step away from that Congress. My goal is for every single person to have at least a post-it note or a social media post or something like that of one thing that they can do to improve the stakes uh, of some larger problem that they see around them. They don't have to do it, but everyone will get to the point, hopefully yeah. in this Congress. So we'll have close to 2000 people leaving a Congress saying I can do something that will make a difference in the big world. So I think that that'll be really cool. Wow, that's lovely. So how do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> Well, I don't think any of us are likely to be remembered at all. You know, if you think about how many people are still known from 1100 AD mm. <laughs> versus the number of people that were alive, I think it's very unlikely any of us will be remembered at all. So for me, um, I mean, I want to be remembered by my family as, as having done the best I could. Mm. Um, I guess I don't care that much about how I'm remembered by, by the broader world. I think that's, a, I've not usually seen people who care about that stuff um, to be that inspired by that vision. So for me, it's more, how do I want to be seen as living right now? Yeah. And one of the things that, that probably shouldn't, but really does give me a lot of joy is, I think that people who meet me get to see who I really am right away. And I don't, I don't put a lot of, <laughs> I probably should, but I don't put a lot of effort into how I am in the world. All the effort, uh, when I'm with people, all the effort goes into me being a person that I want to be. So I think if I, can be, if I can be seen and I hear from a bunch of different people from countries all over the world, and a bunch of different contexts, and they're all giving me the same feedback about what they mm -hmm. see in me, then that feels, especially if it's positive, uh, <laughs> you know, then that feels just as good and, and how I'll be remembered, you know, how could that possibly matter, right? <laughs> how could that matter? <laughs> how I'll be yeah. remembered once I'm, once I'm dead, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just what I, what I can put out in the world that people can use. And, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I say that at the same time that I say that I'm still drawing inspiration from Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and all these great figures. So gone, yeah, exactly. They are remembered for what they live for.
I yeah, think. yeah. But they already exist, so we don't need another, you know, tall, skinny <laughs> guy from the U.S. to add to that list. We, we know people out there. We don't need new ones, necessarily. <laughs> for all your experience that you want to transmit to others. Uh, well, I think there's two things. I'm, I'm working on, I'm still working on something my grandfather told me when I was 14, and it's uh, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, he, he didn't mean don't take your responsibility and your, you know, the, the, the gift of life trivially. You know, he was very dedicated person as, as my family tended to be uh, to doing good works in the world. So he didn't mean like, it's no big deal life is, he wasn't like Camus saying, you know, life is all absurd, so you might as well do whatever you want. Um, he was just saying that when we get really caught up in thinking we're supposed to get certain outcomes from the world or people are supposed to treat us a certain way, uh, you know, you think of someone who does some, some work similar to you and they're making tons of money and are very famous and you're nobody, like, that's not a big deal. You know, that's sort of what he was saying. Like, live, live for what is important to you, but don't take yourself too seriously. I struggle with that one because I still have a lot of that, that self-centeredness, but I think it's, I think it's good, at least in the way that I under, understand it. The other piece that really made a difference for me, you know, um, I tended to look at the world as being at fault for how I felt about life and felt like I deserved all this sort of different paths and people to see I'm really great or something like that. And so the world, when it, it didn't see that, was a problem to me <laughs> when I was younger. Mm. And so it's really important to just learn to be able to savor the, the beauty that is out in the world. And I've never gone a day without seeing something beautiful. Mm. It's maybe even seeing a hundred things that are really beautiful, whether it's in a, whether it's in a person or a, a tree or a cloud or or just the smell in the air or the temperature. There's always something really just, just beautiful going on. And um, so notice it, you know, and, and appreciate it and let that be an acknowledgement that actually the world does have things worth preserving and worth drawing inspiration from. And that a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times the, the pain and the hostility we see in the world around us is just a little part of it. And in, in some cases is something that we could work on in our own lives mm. instead yeah. of just blaming on the world. Yeah, yeah. So that's beautifully uh, just made me think of uh, asking you your daily practice. I don't know if, um, you know, this uh, practice or this habit of saying what is beautiful every day is like some kind of journaling you do or, you know, what, what's, your, what's your daily practice to make sure that, you know, you keep, you know, living or doing meaningful work and live a meaningful life? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm pretty blessed by being neurotic. You know, I'm high in neuroticism, so I'm always worrying about something and always, always thinking things. So my practice is pretty much in my head. And, and so I'm very frequently thinking about whether I'm doing enough. Um, am I working on the right sorts of projects? Did I say something that bothered someone? Um, 
you know, am I, am I letting myself off the hook too easy for being lazy or enjoying myself? Or do I really need this right now? Do I need to, you know, decompress? So I'm, I'm always in my head, you know, so that, so part of my practice is getting out of there and just into the world. And I'm, I'm just not able to do journaling. I've really tried. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, I've, 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 I've I struggle with attention span. I struggle with distraction. Um, so really it's just getting caught up in, in life as it is around me outside, yeah. outside my head, just, just simplifying things. I can, I can trust that I will be able to go back into the intellectual world. I'll go back into the self scrutiny world. I'll go back into the, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing in my life? Cause that's just built into me by now. So mm-hmm. the important part of my daily practice is, trying to just be attentive to to what's going on in the world around me and especially that comes with my kids you know and my my partner how close can we how close can i really be to really being into what they're giving me and interactions but then also the world around me and just what's Mm -hmm. what's happening and trying not to be aggravated by you know by what's going on and instead finding a way to appreciate it yeah, yeah. So tell me, if your life was a film or a book, which title would it be? <laughs> figure well, I, out the title. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't know. There's not really a point. Well, <laughs> my favorite movie quote of all time comes from the movie Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a 1980s science fiction movie where there's androids and all sorts of stuff. And uh, One of the androids, played by Daryl Hannah, says, we're stupid and we'll die. And uh, that, that is like an inspirational quote for me. You know, we're actually pretty simple creatures and, uh, you know, we will die. And so if we accept that we're, we have limitations, that we're not all-knowing and all-powerful and that we will come to an end, I think that there's a way to live beautifully now and, and be honest about what we should be doing with our lives. So I kind of like that as the title of the, of the movie about my life, We're Stupid and We'll Die. But I actually <laughs> thought of a different movie, an existing movie, uh, one called Defending Your Life. It was mm. also, I think, from the 80s. Uh, it starred Albert Brooks and I think Meryl Streep even. And uh, the character dies and goes to heaven. And essentially mm. what happens is they sit in a, a movie screening room and show, and show clips of his life and point out to him ways in which he messed up or he did a decent job and you know but he had to you have to like argue why you deserve to go to heaven in this movie and then they show you like clips from your life that is why you probably shouldn't go to heaven (laughs) (laughs) i think that's kind of like that movie feels like my life in in a lot of ways i'm just like what's the title again i'm surely you need to go and watch that (laughs) What's, what's the title of that movie again it's called Defending Your Life. Defending Your Life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the okay. Classic, I suppose. Okay. Finally, what is your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? We talked about quite a lot of things, uh, but if you have to summarize that, what will that be? Yeah. So I'll start with meaning. Like a meaningful life is one in which you, first of all, feel like you have some inherent worth and value and that life is worth living. So you feel like it's significant and that it matters and that you matter. The second part of that is that you can make sense of life. You can understand what's going on in the world around you. You have 
some awareness of the type of mental model or mental map that you use to just process what's happening. And then finally, you have a sense of purpose, which is you have discovered or in the process of discovering some really important, very long-term aim or mission that is worth doing with your life. You know, it's worth, it's worthy of a life. Mm -hmm. So that is what makes life feel meaningful. It's significant. You can comprehend it and it kind of hangs together and you've got something that's worthy of this huge gift that we have of being alive. Mm, Meaningful work, I think, and ideally is going to be an extension of the things that make you feel all those things about your life. So Mm. you your work should feel really harmonious with the pieces that are important to you about the rest of your life, in particular, the things that make your life feel meaningful. So uh, if there's conflict or if you're having to compartmentalize what you do at work and then you go home and be a good person, <laughs> that's not meaningful work. Mm, yeah. Meaningful work also seems to have um, a, a need to make some sort of impact on the world around you. And you need to be able to see, you need to be able to have like a line of sight. When I do this at work, these good things happen in the world mm-hmm. in places that I care about. Yeah. 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 That yeah. gives a lot of perspective. That's super. Is there anything that I haven't asked, but you feel that should be actually, you know, I should have asked you. <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, I don't think so at all. So I appreciate the chance to talk with you and I had an enjoyable time trying to answer your questions and that- hopefully, you know, not a, uh, scaring anybody away from the topic of meaning no that's <laughs> i think yes no that was fantastic thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing all your knowledge and you know what you've been doing so far you've been working with meaning for how long 30 years at least i think right well, well in one way or the <laughs> other yeah but i've been researching meaning for about 19 years now. yeah so that's a lot long long time so how yeah. can people reach you or get to know what you are working uh, what's the best way people can find uh, I have a terrible website that I keep forgetting to update, uh, michaelfsteger.com. Uh, I think LinkedIn is a good way because I've started to enjoy um, sharing things occasionally that come up on LinkedIn, but I'm just not really, I'm just not really active in, in, in that side of things. So uh, if folks have questions, you know, I teach a meaning in life class through oh. the whole being is it, institute. Is it online? Do you teach online it's, as well? It's online. It's, it's a live class. I mean, so, there, so there's Q&A and all that sort of stuff, but I, there's also a, a downloadable version. And we'll be, I'll be teaching it again in the spring. And, you know, I, I, you know, I will always probably point out when I get, to get a chance to go give a talk somewhere. But, yeah, I, I like happenstance. I, I know I should be a little bit more organized with, with uh, <laughs> self-promotion, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna try and get my re- I'm gonna try and get my website updated. That's my big goal lately. Okay, cool. Okay, so and your your course is also on your website, right? It has a link on your website for your course. I think so. Okay, I hope so. Okay, so I'll I'll post uh, some link in the show notes anyway, and uh, okay, how people you. can find you and you know enjoy more of what you're doing if you want to. They want to go further. Well, thank <laughs> thank you. you so much, Mike. It was a great, great great pleasure to have you and uh you know to share all your wisdom yeah and thank you for your work and helping people explore meaningful work and meaningful life <laughs> you really need what you're doing so thank you so much thank you very much <laughs>
What are you committed to do today to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life? The show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on this show. Whilst you are there, leave me a message to tell me in the comments what was your key takeaway from this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and will also help me to spread this word and being found online. So thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empowers you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another epic episode of the season four. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love.